0: Hello, and welcome to the City Grace podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Again, it's good to have everybody this morning. Uh, if you're newer to City Grace, it's a good day to be here. Uh, we just closed off a, a series of messages last week, and we'll be kicking off just a, f- a few weeks here of, of a talk that I want to do um, Talking about kind of uncertainty and uncertain times and, and, and living and, and having faith and, and in spite of uncertainty, because I think that for a lot of us, maybe that's why you know, faith may not be a big part of your life now. You're maybe thinking about coming back with, to your faith or reengaging with your faith, thinking about following Jesus, thinking about church and those kinds of things. But there's just some times when it feels like faith doesn't really work, right? There are some times, if we're honest, that it feels like prayer doesn't really work. And, and church, like what's it all about? What's the purpose and what's going on? Because we just get rocked sometimes by events and, and happenstances and circumstances that come up in our life. And, and so today we're going to be talking or kicking off a, a few talks um, on this, this idea of being in God's hands. And, and to kind of start us off today, I think it's just something, I just want to state the obvious. Um, but maybe it's something that we don't really put into words or kind of throw out there or think about right up front, and that is the fact that God operates in uncertainty, at least from our side of the equation. He's not uncertain, but when we are uncertain about life and about direction and about pain and about problems and, and all of these things that we pray and ask God to take away or take out of our lives, God is operating in those times of uncertainty, Anybody know what I'm talking about can say an amen with me before? Yeah, some of us. I think that that's something that we all kind of have to come to grips with. God operates in uncertainty. And answered prayers require desperate times that need to be prayed over. Anybody know that's true? That we pray more when life's going rough. Right? I mean... God must really want me to pray. Hello, <laughs> like That's the way we feel sometimes, right? Because God keeps bringing thing after thing. Answered prayers require, they require, they demand of us desperate times that we actually have to pray over. Then think about miracles. Who wants to see miracles, right? I mean, we'd all love to see a miracle, especially when, it, nobody, especially when it comes, how many of you would like to see a miracle in your bank account today? Okay, thank you. Now, here's the thing about miracles. Miracles require impossible circumstances. If it's something you can handle, it's not a miracle. Miracles require impossible, impossible circumstances. And so all of these things are untrue. All of these things are part of life. Uncertainty has to come for God to operate in the ways that God operates. God is so much, this isn't in my notes. I'm going to give you guys this for free too. How many of you know that God has to be smarter than us? Right? Like if God's only as smart as me, guys, we're in trouble right? God has to be smarter than us. God has to see things that we don't. And so God operates in uncertainty and desperate times are what is needed for answered prayers and impossible circumstances. They are the soil of miracles. That's how miracles come about. But on this side of the uncertainty, not seeing everything God sees, not knowing everything God knows, on this side of the uncertainty, everything just feels so uncertain, doesn't it? (laughs) On this side of desperation, everything just feels absolutely so very desperate, doesn't it? And it's scary, and it shakes us. And we're not sure where God is, and if God's even listening, right? And it's just these things happen in life, and they just really, they really get us kind of shook up. I can remember when, um, when Chelsea was about nine, ten, eleven months pregnant with Caleb, and that baby coming. Whoosh, Right over some of y'all's heads. That baby coming, that was so very scary, right? Any new, any parents know what I'm talking about when the first one was on the way, and you're just so worried, and there's all these fears, and you know, I was so worried about complications and my health, you know, when my baby was coming, just really worried about things. And then on the other side of Caleb arriving, though, I was fine. Everything whew, still going right over. Come on. By the time she's pregnant with JL. I wasn't worried about my health at all. That joke, the whole thing just did not work. But events and seasons in life, even things like I'm talking about with the birth of a child, it may be a little bit normal, but there's still that uncertainty. There's still that fear. Nobody had to tell me to pray when my kid was on the way. Nobody had to pray when Caleb was being born and the cord was wrapped around his neck. Nobody had to tell me, it's okay for you to pray in the delivery room. I was already praying. And that's the way we are. When we get into desperate times, nobody has to give us permission to talk to God, do they? Anybody ever heard the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Like once the bullets start flying, once the bombs start dropping, like we all, we all hit our knees, right? And so there are events and there are seasons and there are moments in life that just kind of grab us by the shoulders and shake us and and demand that we pay attention. And after those, those moments, we know my life is never going to be the same after this. My perspective and my relationship with God even is never going to be the same after this. And so we pray during times of uncertainty. We pray during times of of desperation. And again, on this side of coming through those events, that season in life, that episode in life, that sickness in life, everything is just just so scary. On this side, when we're about to go through it or when we're going through everything, everything. It's so scary and that word seems so light. I mean, it's just intense fear and worry sometimes and, and our faith is shaken and even the trust that we have in God can sometimes get downgraded to hope. The faith we have in God can sometimes get downgraded to hope where I believed before but now with everything coming, I, I'm just I'm just hoping. I, I don't see any evidence that God is here, that God is still in control and where are you, God? And why haven't my prayers been answered? And when is my change going to come. And I hear of other people getting healed. I hear of other people receiving blessings. I hear of other people experiencing miracles. And yet, here I am. And so why not me? Did I not earn it? Did I not deserve it? And is my life just not worth it? But miracles require impossible circumstances. And answered prayers require just desperate times that have to be prayed over. And from our perspective, God operates in uncertainty. But here's something that we we can know. If we look back over the the events of our life, just in this, this big kind of grand view of the timeline, we can know this that God is still God even when I am uncertain. Can I hear an amen from somebody? That God is still God even when my faith feels unconvinced. God remains God. Now there's an uncertain time, I would argue, maybe the most uncertain event in human history, certainly the one with the most at stake I, I would argue and it happened about two thousand years ago one night, and it was preceded by this this meal, and we're going to talk about this tonight or this 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 morning. It was preceded by this this one of this the most dramatic meals and moments I, I think in history, but certainly in the Bible, and it took place in what we know now is something called the upper room or an an upper room, which was just kind of a common area. It was like the great room of, of first century Jewish architecture and Jewish homes. And, and Jesus had gathered his 12 closest followers together, his 12 closest disciples, to have what we know as the Last Supper, which was the last time that they were going to celebrate together the meal that was part of the festival of Passover. And Passover to the Jewish people, it was like their Jewish Fourth of July, it was their Jewish Independence Day. It was, this was the event when a family, they had started out as a family, when the family grew to a national scale and, and, and had been emancipated from slavery and became the nation of Israel. And their Independence Day had happened about 1,500 years before Jesus and this thing that we call the Last Supper. And their, their, last, uh, their ancestors had had their last meal in their slave state in the nation of, uh, of Egypt. And for 400 years now, Now think, our country's been around, what, a little over 200 years? For 400 years, the nation of Israel had been enslaved by Egypt. For 400 years, they had lived in a country not their own, forced into labor camps, and their free labor became the backbone of the Egyptian economy. And by the time of their emancipation, by the time of them being set free, about 1,500 years before Jesus, all they had known as a nation was a life of slavery. For 400 years, they had been praying for God to set them free. We're like four days sometimes, like, is there even a God? You know, it's been four days since I've been. 400 years, they've been praying for God to set them free. They'd almost quit praying. They'd almost stopped believing in the God of their ancestors. Entire generations had been born and died as slaves. And it was getting kind of hard for them to believe that God was going to answer and God was going to step in. Their future was uncertain and especially when Pharaoh wanted to crush the rebellion or possible future rebellion and and so God sent this this amazing story that happened you may know the story of Moses be familiar with that and God sent a man named Moses who walked into the lives of these this slave nation and told them tomorrow God says that we leave Egypt and that night they were it was such a weird way to pull off a, a jailbreak it was the biggest jailbreak in history and it was so awkward so weird He said, tonight, I want you, everybody, to get a lamb, and you're going to slaughter this lamb, and then you're going to eat the lamb as a meal with all of your clothes on and your walking sticks in your hand like you're getting ready to go, and then I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to paint it over your doorposts, and it's going to be a symbol to God that you trust in this crazy, crazy plan for him to set you free. And so they did that night. They, they, they slaughtered the lamb, and they ate the meat, and they ate their dinner with all their clothes on, and they painted the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And that night, what was called the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt. And in every house, that angel of death took the life of every firstborn creature, kind of as a, a repayment of what Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had done to this nation of Israel, except the angel of death would pass over Every home where they had the blood of the lamb point painted on their doorposts. And that's why it's called the Passover. It's the festival of the Jewish Passover when they were saved from God's judgment on those that had enslaved them. And so that night, Pharaoh then calls Moses into his, his chambers and he tells him, fine, take all of your people and just get out. And so that night, 1,500 years before Jesus would celebrate the Last Supper, his ancestors, the nation of Israel, got up Fully dressed, fully packed, fully ready to go. And then they left. And as they were leaving, they took all of the precious metals and all of the jewels from the Egyptians around them. And that night, they were set free and walked out of Egypt, free and wealthy, wealthy people. And God had pulled off the biggest jailbreak in history without them ever lifting a hand in violence. That had happened. And so now, 1,500 years later, they're celebrating the festival of Passover. And one of the key um, components of that festival was them sharing this meal that commemorated that meal that their ancestors had eaten some 1,500 years earlier. And Jesus and his 12 men were there and celebrating together. But it happened a little bit differently this time. See, before when they had celebrated, it was kind of like at the peak of Jesus' career. At that point, like all of the crowds loved Jesus, and all of the crowds had gathered, and at one point they had laid palm branches in the street as he was coming through, and, and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, like you're the king that we've been waiting for. You're the rescuer that we've been waiting for because we find ourselves enslaved again, not to Egypt this time. This time it's Rome that is over us and we think that you're going to be our next Moses, our next deliverer. And so the crowds were around them always and, and Jesus' closest followers, they thought, hey, Jesus is the guy And we're the guys next to the guy. You know, we're on his left and we're on his right. And so everything's good. And the crowds were growing. And the miracles of Jesus, as you start reading the accounts of his career, they're just getting like more and more kind of grand in scale. And at one point, the last straw kind of for his opposition was Jesus had called someone back from the dead. And everything was great. And and, and everything was looking wonderful until, until this night of the Last Supper. This time, things felt different. This time, it seemed like momentum was starting to shift away from Jesus. And the rumors were flying hot and heavy that a group of power brokers that were in opposition to Jesus were trying to isolate Jesus and get him away from the crowd because the crowd was protecting Jesus. But if they could ever get Jesus away, they could arrest him. They could take him to secret trial and have Jesus done away with. Jesus given over to the Romans, and the Romans ruled over them, and the Romans were the only ones who could put somebody to death, and so they had all of their accusations ready. They had all of their false witnesses and the lies set up and ready to go, and Rome would come and do to Jesus what Rome did best to anybody that was in rebellion to Rome, and they would squash the rebellion and squash all of the followers and execute Jesus like they had executed other Jewish men. Nailing them to a cross before Jesus. And then, to make matters worse for the disciples, because things are starting to feel uncertain for them, they're getting a little nervous. We're supposed to be with the guy that's winning, and now feels like he's just like keeping even. Maybe he's not winning so much anymore. And then, to make matters worse, Jesus starts talking to them like constantly now in the last days and weeks leading up to, to his arrest and everything. Jesus starts talking to them about his own death. And treating it like it's a foregone conclusion. Not like, hey guys, I might die, so let's do this. Hey guys, I might be executed, so let's prepare, let's arm ourselves, let's buy all the bullets before California changes the laws. No, keep my hand down. Uh, let's do all of the, we gotta hurry up and, and get everything. No, he's just like, no, 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 I'm gonna die. It's going to happen. And they're like, well, wait a minute, if that's gonna happen, why? How? How can you be with God? Because they had an assumption, like we always have this assumption, right? That if God is with you, bad stuff shouldn't happen to you. Turn and tell somebody close to you, if God is with you, you'd never get a toothache. Come on, tell somebody. Like you, Tell them, if God is really with you, come on, tell them. If God is really with you, tell somebody. Go ahead, come on. I'm waiting on you guys. If God is with you, You'd never run out of gas. If God is with you, you'd never have an argument with your mom. You'd never have a fight with your husband or what. No, even if God is with you, you're still gonna have fights with your husband and your wife. Can I hear an amen from somebody? <laughs> That's what I thought. Loudest amen I'll get today. But no, we all think this way, don't we? If God's with me, bad stuff shouldn't happen to me. So, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're gonna die. You're the man. You're the man. You're going to start the rebellion and overthrow all the the corrupt Jewish people and then come against Rome. And, And we all think this way. If God's with you, bad stuff shouldn't happen to you. We, they thought that way. Everybody thinks that way. if God is happening, or if God is with you, no bad stuff should be happening to you. And, you know, that should be something that we can count on. There shouldn't be any uncertainty around that. We shouldn't have to question that. So, Jesus, what are you talking about? That you're going to die. And Jesus just won't let it go. Jesus won't let it go. Hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. Everybody on the bus. We're going to go and we're going to get me executed in Jerusalem. They're like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. You seem almost happy about this." But see, Jesus knew something they didn't. So they're getting on the bus and Peter's like, "Hey Jesus, stop talking about that. It's 4th of July weekend." And Jesus is like, "No, no, no. Back of the bus, Satan, get behind me. Be seated, Satan, back there." And it's like Jesus had a death wish, walking right into the hands of the enemy, walking right into the jaws of death. And Jesus, why are you doing this? And where are we going to watch the fireworks? And whose house has the biggest barbecue and, and Passover festival? And Jesus, tell us. And then they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem. They weren't really on a bus, just in case anybody's wondering. they, they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem, And it's Jesus, like stops them there that night, and he waits till sun sundown, and and then at sundown they're like, you know, why why aren't we going into the city? Why aren't we going to wherever we're going to celebrate our Passover meal? And Jesus is just keeping them there, and then he sends two of them ahead, and it's this weird kind of circumstance that happens, and Jesus has pre-planned everything, and Jesus sends two of them ahead to meet with this mysterious man, and this mysterious man takes them to this mysterious house where they go to the upper room, and they find that everything there is ready for them to celebrate the passover feast together and Jesus has prearranged for their last passover supper together and he never told them because he couldn't trust someone in his closest circle of 12 and that someone was named Judas and he wanted to be away from the crowds with them but he didn't want anything to erupt or interrupt rather their their time away from the crowds and and so they sneak into town with nobody around them they sneak into town with no celebration no fanfare and it feels dangerous and it feels ominous and it just feels so uncertain We were so certain that you were going to be the king. And now everything just feels really, really uncertain. And things that they have been dreading and things that they didn't think they needed to dread suddenly seem a very real possibility. Their leader, their savior, their hero is telling them that he is going to die. And it's all because of the circumstances all around them. And then Jesus he just makes things even worse, and, and Peter was there, and, and most people think Mark. If you look in your Bible, in the new part is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark. Mark is, is someone that wasn't there, but everybody thinks that he interviewed Peter to kind of get his account of all of the events, and, and so we believe Peter told Mark, what we read in Mark chapter 14, verses 17 and 18, when the evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12, and while they're reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me, going to hand me over, going to betray me. Nobody asked at that point, will Jesus hand you over to who? They already knew the answer. They already knew that there was opposition. They already knew that there were people wanting to take Jesus' life. And they thought to themselves, how in the world could it possibly be one of us? How could we do that to Jesus? Well, Jesus, who is it? Is it us? Is it the guy that led us here? Is it somebody else that's close around us? And he says, no, it's even worse than that. One of you who is eating with me. A, they're in this incredibly private huddle. Nobody knows they're here, right? Arranged in secrecy. Only 14 people in the world know they are there. One of the men the man outside, Jesus, and then them 12. And Jesus says, it's one of you 12 eating here with me. One of you is going to betray me. So Jesus, you keep talking about dying. Jesus, you keep talking about being handed over, and now it's going to be one of us, and we don't even know how to process that. And at this point, they're still wondering, well, maybe like, one of us is accidentally going to let it out. One of us is accidentally going to slip with our words and give away your position, give away where you are. And, and so they're saddened by this, and one by one, they, they start asking him, surely you don't mean me. Can you imagine the drama of that moment? Like the angst? Because here's Jesus, the hero. The guy, the hope of the world, and he looks you in the eyes and says, one of you is going to betray me. You're know, like, Jesus, I-, I hope it's not me. I hope it's not me. I hope you're not talking about me. And he goes on, and he, just, he drives it home. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And he says this, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Now, before we go on too fast, think about this. The Son of Man will go, just so talking about his death, talking about his arrest, talking about all the stuff that's going to happen on the cross. The Son of Man will go just as it is written. It was predicted. God already knew about this, it was already supposed to happen, which means that his pain and his suffering was already meant for him to endure. The betrayal he was about to experience was planned before he was ever born. None of it caught Jesus by surprise. And really, I think that that's one of our biggest problems that we have with uncertainty, isn't it? That we didn't know it was coming. We never saw the trouble coming. We never saw the pain on the way. How many of us have ever had a root canal? Raise your hand. Yeah. How many of us have ever had a tetanus shot? Raise your hand. If the person next to you doesn't have their hand in the air, move over. Like, when you know pain is coming, (laughs) I see some people shifting seats right now. When you know pain is coming, you're okay with it. When there is a purpose to the suffering and a purpose to the pain You're okay with it because you know that what happens on the other side of it was worth what you had to go through. See, the biggest problem that we have with uncertainty, with pain, and with suffering is that we're not sure it's really worth it, and we never saw it coming. Oh, for the peace that would come if we could learn to surrender our lives and place our lives into the control of someone who sees everything, who knows my end from the beginning, who said that the days of my life were already written in a book. Mm, mm. Somebody needs to get that this morning. Hello. We get upset because we're surprised by the pain and the circumstances that come around us. A lot of times, it's just, that's the thing that shakes us. That's the thing that rocks us. But here's the thing, and I want to put this story on pause for a little bit, if I can. As we read this story, as we read so many other stories in the Bible, here's the thing. This Bible, this thing we call the Bible, this collection of documents, some of them thousands or all of them thousands of years old, some of them thousands of years even older than others, it's full of stories and narratives of the lives of people who were just in uncertain and gut-wrenching circumstances. And to anybody here this morning that is facing uncertainty, anybody here this morning with fear and doubt and, and just this episode of life where you're just not really sure if you believe that God even exists or for sure like that God wants to hear your prayers or do anything about what you're going through, I'm telling you, this is the perfect book for you to pick up and read. In every story in this book, maybe some of the stories you've heard before, some of them might be your favorite stories, and, and maybe you have a favorite psalm, a poem in there. Maybe you have a favorite proverb, you know, this wise saying that, that we, these wise sayings that we find in the older part of the book. All of these stories, all of these poems, all of these proverbs come from people who are in seasons of profound pain in their lives. They're written in times of desperate uncertainty. This is not a book about rich people having fun. It's just not. This isn't a get-rich-quick book. It's not a feel-better-about-yourself book. It's about feel-better-about-whose-you-are, feel-better-about-who-you-trust, feel-better-about-who-you-put-your-confidence-in. That's what this book is all about. This, is, this book is not about, you know, life was good, and then on Monday I got a raise, and then on Tuesday, I got a bonus, and my kid was a pro athlete by Thursday, right? And my other kid went to medical school on a scholarship by, thir- by Friday, which was kind of silly because we never get sick. No, like every single story, every single character in this book, all of the passages that we and other people have drawn hope and inspiration from for thousands of years have come from people who are living in seasons and times of desperation and uncertainty and fear And doubt, but people who also come out the other side of their troubles, writing an unshakable faith that even in uncertain times, God is still certain. That even in days and moments where it feels like God is absent, He was there all along in the most unexpected way. Can I hear an amen from somebody with a story this morning? That even though we endure seasons of incredible pain, that God is still a healer for my pain. That God is still a healer for my disease. That even though I'm rocked by troubles that might rob me of my trust, that God is still trustworthy, even when I find it hard to trust him. And whatever you're facing, whatever mountains of pain might loom over you and and has you doubting, if there was ever a time to pick up this book and ask God to give you inspiration and, and fuel and food for your faith. I'm telling you, the time is now. There's a story of Joseph in there. Anybody fight with their brothers and sisters? Especially like adult brothers and sisters? Like, Right? Uh, sorry, I got you to raise your hand too quick. Adult brothers and sisters. Maybe you want to keep your hand down just in case you're both in church this morning. But you know they're not in church. Hello. No, but you, Joseph. We find the story of Joseph. And Joseph finds his older brothers, they were like in their 40s and 50s, he was a 17 year old kid, There's an age difference in the family, and he was one, dad, he, one of dad's favorites, he found himself in the bottom of a cistern, like this holding tank out in the middle of the desert, can't escape, and they've thrown him down there, beat him up and thrown him down there, and he hears them talking up on the ground level of whether they're going to sell him or kill him, sell him or kill him, and, and you know, we think we have family problems, Right? Joseph ends up sold into slavery by his own brothers. But here's the amazing thing. When you get to the end of Joseph's life, and Joseph has dictated the narrative of his life story, told the story for preservation, and they wrote it all down. There's this phrase that Joseph keeps injecting into his story. "That Yeah, I thought things were over at that point, but when I look back now, God was still with Joseph. It's in there. You should read it. When he's sold as a slave, he says God was with Joseph. When he's falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison later, guess what he broke back into his own life story? And God was with Joseph. Joseph came through times that we will never experience, and he came out the other side with an unshakable faith that when I look at everything that happened to me, God was ultimately in control. In fact, he tells his brothers at one point, he meets his brothers. I'm telling you the story of Joseph. Like it gives, you, it gives me chills every time I read it. When you get to the end of the story, Joseph's brothers are reunited to him, and he's in a position of power above them. And he looks at them, and he tells them, don't worry about it. He sold him into slavery. And he tells them, don't worry about it. What you meant for evil, God meant for good which means that even the evil that comes against us, which seems so big and so scary, God has it tamed and God has it under control when he holds your life in the palm of his hands. Hello, David, the second king of Israel. David has just, his life is this roller coaster. And we looked at his, his life a, f- a few series ago and he's one of the ancestors of Jesus. And you think you have problems with your kids? David wakes up one morning and finds out that one of his adult sons has actually gathered together an army and is marching against the capital city to kill David and take away his throne. This is in there. By the way, if anybody ever tells you you need a biblical model for your family, don't do it. Like all the families in the Bible, especially in the old part, they are just messed up. Just don't ever look to the Bible, the old part of your Bible, for an answer to your family. I'm just going to give you that for free this morning. David, his son, is coming to murder him and to take the throne. But again, David is able to somehow see God's hand in all of it. And when he gets to the end and all of the events played out, with God in control of all of the events, that thing that came against David and seemed impossible and seemed uncertain and filled him with fear, God used it all to solidify his reign as Israel's king. We all perhaps know the story of of a Jewish mother who heard that the Egyptian king, before the exodus, before this Passover event happened, it's the story of Moses himself. Moses' mother hears that the Egyptian king is going to come and kill and murder all of the Jewish babies because he hears that there's this rebellion coming. And she takes her son, her baby son, just an infant, and wraps him up and puts him in a basket and runs out in secret to the Nile River, full of crocodiles, full of dangers, and not really knowing what's going to happen. And she puts her baby boy in a basket into that Nile River and and pushes it out into the... Can you imagine? Can you imagine the emotion, the desperation of that woman in that moment? Can you imagine her tears, her fear, her, her prayers, and wondering, where in the world is God that I have to do this? With my baby and pushes him out into the current because if it's going to be the Egyptian butchers or the Nile River full of crocodiles, but God being in control, I will trust my baby into the Nile River. And she has to turn. Think about that. When she, This is so powerful. When she has to turn around and walk away from that riverbank where she has just left her baby boy. And we know the story of Moses, that God actually preserves him. One of Pharaoh's daughters comes down to the river and finds the baby and takes the baby home. And God raises the baby in safety right under the nose of the Egyptian king that was trying to snuff out God's rescue plan. God's in control. God's got this. God has got this. Even in uncertain times, you can be certain about God. You can be certain about God. In all of these stories in all of the uncertainty, and all of the fear, every drop of pain and every falling tear, the people who lived these stories, the people who cried in these stories, the people who prayed and the people who doubted and the people who wondered how God could possibly be anywhere in their circumstances, they all emerged from their story. They all emerged from their storm and their pain absolutely convinced that God is still God even when I'm not sure that God is still God, that God is still trustworthy, even though I'm having such a hard time trusting in an unseen God, that God, in fact, still has the whole world in the palm of his hands, in the palm of his hands. Turn and tell somebody God still got the whole world in his hands. And even though it looked like evil had won, even though it looked like a pagan king had got one over and bad guys won the day or the tragedy Was pointless. You read these stories, and you realize that on the other side of extraordinary uncertainty, that God was still God, and God was never shaken, and God was never worried. God never chews his fingernails. God never chews his fingernails. God is still God, and God's got it all under control. And so that night, fast-forwarding fifteen hundred years from the Passover, that night when they sat around the table having the last Passover meal to, together. And it's the 12 disciples and Jesus. And Jesus has told them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be executed. And they look around and they wonder, how in the world can this be? How, what are you talking about? And, and Jesus further complicates it and make things, makes things more uncertain by looking them eye to eye and telling them it's going to be one of you. He continues on with the rest of that evening in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And while they're eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take it this is my body. Now for us, maybe you've been around a communion service before, you've heard these words before, and so they don't really, you know, have any impact to us. For those 12 men, this absolutely shocked them. What? This is your body? We've, we've eaten this meal and celebrated this meal from the time we were little boys. Nobody's ever said anything like this. It's just weird. This is your body? And now you want to take, you want us to take this and eat this as a symbol of your body. You're taking 4th of July and making it about you, Jesus. Jesus would say, yes, this is my body, which is broken for you. Another passage tells us, he says, which is broken for you. That's that death talk again. And it doesn't make sense. And it leaves them a little hesitant. If God is with you, if God is for you, why would anything bad happen to you? When Jesus isn't done. He goes on. And then he takes a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. Somebody say, "You." He said, This is my blood. There it is again. The death talk. This is my blood of the covenant. This new way of being in relationship with God that I am about to open up to everybody who will through my pain and through my suffering. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And they had no idea that within hours he would be arrested. See, we know the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story. They didn't know that within hours he would be arrested. They didn't know that within hours. False witnesses would be giving false testimony to unjustly condemn an innocent man. They didn't know that within merely hours, certainly within a day, that he would be marched up a hill after being beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross. They didn't know as they drank this last supper, what we call communion, for the very first time. They didn't know that the blood that he was talking about would be spilled on the ground and run out of his body. Just within hours. But certainly, it was starting to seem uncertain. Certainly, all of the things that they had counted on were seeming to be shaken. Certainly, all of the hopes and the dreams that they had put into Jesus were were being taken away one by one. But then, in that moment, in that moment, how could this happen to you, Jesus? How could this happen to God's Son, if you're really God's Son? How can this happen to the way, the truth, and the life, if you really are the way and the truth and the life, how can God begin this? How can God be with you? This is so confusing and it doesn't make sense. And we don't see the end and how everything's going to turn out. But this isn't going the way that we've planned it. And then Jesus makes matters even worse. He's already told him one of them is going to betray him. And he goes on in verse 7 and he says this, or verse 27, you will all fall away. And there are these words again, for it is written. It's already been predicted. I already know what you guys are going to do. I already know how you guys are going to deny me and turn and run away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus, we're the core members of your movement. We're the 12 guys you chose to carry this thing on. And you're telling us that in a few hours, we're all going to deny you and run away. You've poured three years, your whole three-year ministry, into us, preparing us, counting on us to be the original Christians and to spread Christianity all over the world. And then we're going to run away. You're telling us you just wasted the last three years of your life that you should have picked some better people maybe? Is that what you're saying? Seeing all of you are going to run away. Jesus, we're responsible for the literal kingdom of God coming down. You told us to pray your kingdom come. You told us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And now, how can God be defeated? How can God's plan not work out? How is this possibly God's will? How is this right? How is this fair? And then think about it from their own personal perspective. We've walked away from businesses to be with you. We've walked away from jobs to be with you. We've left our families pushed to the side for a few years while we're on this mission with you. How in the world? We, we're risking death for this, and it's all just going to just disappear? So uncertain, so confusing. Just like us, isn't it? Just like our pain, just like our divorce, just like our sickness, just like our son who won't talk to us, just like our daughter who's just seemingly shutting us out, just like our parents who have seemed to maybe move away from us and and turn their backs on us, just like our careers that were derailed, just like our hopes that didn't happen, just like our finances, It just there was that thing that happened and everything fell apart and you can't seem to recover. Hello, how can God be here? How could this possibly be God's plan if God loves me? But here's the thing, we know the other side of their story and at this point, they don't. And they are at this point wrestling with a question that you and I have to wrestle with when it comes to our faith being shaken and our trust in God. As we move in and out of seasons and years of life defined by uncertainty, uncertainty about career, uncertainty, uncertainty about our finances or our health or the diagnosis or the prognosis or children or children's health or home or the economy or the country or the future of the church or God's work in this world or your purpose, your reason that you're here, all of the doubts that attack us. We have to all wrestle with this question just like they did on that night. Can we trust God even when there is no evidence of his activity in your life? Can you trust God when it seems like God is absent? Can you trust God when it seems like God just doesn't have anything to say to you? Can you still see him as a heavenly father when it doesn't feel like he's anywhere near you? When he doesn't feel like he could possibly be anywhere in your pain. But how you answer this question determines how you respond to the uncertainty and the fear that will doubtless come into your life. Whether you follow Jesus or whether you don't. See, you don't follow Jesus so that your life will be pain free, problem free. Anybody that promises you a wrinkle free Christianity, run away. It's not gonna happen. Anybody that starts quoting the old part of your Bible and there's all these beautiful prompts, I plans. you do not know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and all this. That was written to the nation of Israel while they were in slavery. Unless you're Jewish in slavery, living about 3,500 years ago, that doesn't really apply to you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I do have a promise for Jesus from, for you. You ready? It says, in this life... You will have trouble. That's what he said. Everybody say, I claim it. (laughs) Come on, somebody. Reach up into the sky. Like those TV preachers. I'm going to do it. I'm auditioning for my TV pre. You ready? Everybody reach up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. Everybody got nervous for some reason. I don't know what happened. I'm just messing. It's okay. In this life, you will have trouble. In this life, you will be persecuted, he said. Everybody say, yes, Lord. In this life, you will go broke. Yes, I receive it two times over. Like, you know. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. It's barbecue just on the other side of those walls. I know, it's coming. It's coming. Hello. But how you answer this question It determines how you see your trouble and how you see those broken relationships and how you view pain and difficulty and stress. And here's the thing, this is is it, this is the turning point. If you tuned out and you're counting the things back here, the lights, listen, come back, here we go. This is the thing, listen, if we were to go to those disciples and ask them months later, hey guys, you spent a lot of time with Jesus, three years following Jesus, He's been arrested. He's been crucified already. He saw him for the 40 days and he saw him resurrected from the dead. The church is launched now. The church is kind of moving on. It's gaining some momentum. Guys, during your three years of following Jesus, what was the darkest time you ever went through? During those three years of walking with him, when were you most afraid? When were you most uncertain about how everything was going to turn out? When was the time and the moment maybe when you had the least amount of hope? Maybe when did you start to think, uh, maybe we backed the wrong Messiah. Maybe we picked the wrong rabbi. Like, you know, I'm not sure this is all going to work out. What if this is a huge mistake? I think they all would have looked at us and told us it was that night when he sat us around that table and told us that he was about to be betrayed. It was that night when we went with him to the garden and the soldiers came and they found us there and we weren't sure how they found us there, but then we remembered that Judas had sneaked out the back door. We knew they found us and Jesus was arrested and when Jesus was arrested, we ran away. That is when we trusted God least. That's when we really started to believe he's actually going to die. It wasn't just empty words that he said to us. He really is going to be handed over and falsely accused and put to death. And this is all going to be over soon. And we ran away that night or the next day, rather when we all from a distance, because we were all hiding, saw him raised up on a cross, nailed cruelly to a cross. And we saw him finally hang his head for the last time. And we could see the blood running out of his body. And we remembered the night when he gave us the cup to drink. And we knew We knew then that this was what he was talking about all along. And we didn't see how God could possibly be in this. We didn't see that there was any way that God could possibly be there. That was the time. That was the moment when we all gave up and we all went back home. That was the lowest point of our time following Jesus. But then, but then, think about this. If we were then to ask them, but guys, 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 when during all your time with Jesus, was God actually doing his greatest work? When during your three years of following Jesus was God doing the most significant thing on the planet that had ever been done for all of humankind? Like was it when Jesus healed the lame guy? Was it when Jesus opened somebody's blind eyes? Peter, was it when you walked on water with Jesus? Was that the time when God did the greatest thing? And they're kind of shaking their heads. No, no. Was it when Jesus stood at the mouth of the tomb and called out to Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth and dead Lazarus had been in the ground literally for four stinking days. And Jesus called Lazarus. Was that the greatest moment of everything that you followed Jesus into and through? And was that when God was doing the biggest thing and the most critical thing? And they would say to us, no that wasn't it either. When God was doing his greatest work was that very same night when it seemed like God was not with us. When God did his greatest thing, it was the same meal. It was the same dinner. It was the same night when Judas sneaked out and Jesus was betrayed. That's when God was doing the greatest thing. It's when we went to the garden and the soldiers came and they arrested him and then we all ran away. That's when God did his biggest work. When we stood at a distance and saw him on the cross and we saw him hang his head for the last time and we saw the blood running out of his body, his life given as an offering that would cover over the sins, not just of us, but of all humanity for all time. We realize now that when it seemed like God was most absent, that God was actually most at work, and my limited view did not limit God. My limited understanding did not put God's hands in handcuffs, but God was still God, even though I didn't see how he possibly could be. And it's the same for you. It's the same for me. It's when we're at our lowest. It's when the night seems the darkest. And During that darkness that God is working out the plan that we just don't understand. We can't see because we don't know everything he knows. And we're not as smart as he is. And he holds in his hands, his master hands, all of the threads of life and all the threads of circumstance and all the threads of pain and purpose. And God is weaving them all together to make my story into a beautiful work of art. God is still God, even when I can't see him active in my life. And those were the hours that for eternity, that for eternity, we will look back on as people and celebrate God's grace and endless mercies. It's because of those days when we thought God was absent that we can now know that he was actually God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. He wasn't absent. He was there all along. He was there all along. But see, this is a difficult message for us, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's a beautiful message. On the one hand, maybe there's some inspiration and there's some hope. But on the other hand, it means that we have to go through darkness to see light. On the other hand, it means that we have to endure pain in order to experience healing. It means that we have to choke back fear sometimes to gain an unshakable courage that God has got us and he's never going to let us go. And this isn't just a generic message of the gospel. This isn't just a generic story of some people in the Bible. For a lot of us here this morning, it's our message. It's our story. That God seems to wait. Why we don't know. Why we don't understand. We would never choose for things to go this way. We would never choose for things to wind up this way and take this path. But that God seems to wait for our brokenness before he shows us his amazing power and his amazing plan. That God seems to wait for things to go beyond our hope before He steps in and He gives us hope in Him. God, His most amazing work is often launched at the point of our deepest pain. But for the, the question for us, again, is can we still trust in God when we can't see God's hand? Can you still trust in God even, when, even though what you're going through is just shaking your faith and rocked your world? When the news seems just overwhelming, and you don't know how in the world God is still going to show up when the hope seems to have completely run out and the, con- and the courage to continue is just it's so weak and it's so frail. Come on, any Christian's going to be honest this morning and say, that's me, I've been there, I've gone through that. Maybe it's you again this morning. God, I don't see you. God, I don't see possibly how. But can we still trust because of story after story that we find in this book called the Bible? Can we still trust? because of the actual life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Even the story of our salvation is wrapped in a blanket of doubt and uncertainty and fear and questions and seeming impossibilities, and yet God still showed himself to be God through it all. And here's the thing about a message like this this morning. None of these words that I'm saying are going to change the diagnosis. You're going to walk out of this room and your bank account still going to show a minus sign right in front of it. I'm not promising you any. If you need food, come talk to me and I'll help you out. And then James and Sonia got plenty of money to share with everybody today. Um, we'll get you connected. Just, just teasing. No, but really, if you need help, come talk to me and we'll, we'll figure something out. But we, when you walk out of these doors, your son's still going to be gone, your daughter's still not going to call. Hello, when you walk out of these doors, it you won't fix the shattered relationship with maybe your mom or your dad or the shattered relationship with your brother or your sister. This isn't the kind of church that promises you life will be pain-free, problem-free if you promise Jesus. But what I can promise you is that if you will follow Jesus through your uncertainty, that you will come out the other side with a certainty that you never had before you went through the pain, that God still holds my world in the palm of his hands. And even though my life may still be uncertain, that Jesus is never uncertain. The economy is uncertain. The world is uncertain. Relationships are uncertain. Family is uncertain. Jobs are uncertain. Wealth and health and the economy is uncertain. But even though life is uncertain, Jesus is not. Jesus still holds the whole world in his nail-scarred hands. Hands that went through pain for you. Hands that were nailed to a cross for you. Hands that have reached for you and for me at times when we have pushed him away and walked away and, and ignored him and, and just, you know, segmented him out of our lives and turned and focused on doing our own thing till finally we took us to the point of pain and problems, sickness. Hello, addictions behaviors that trapped us, relationships that we broke, words that we spoke, things that we did. Now we're desperate. and We're here and we're wondering all of the evil that has come, some of it because of us, some of it done to us. All of this, could God possibly still be found in it all? And he stands there and there's the witness of all the people in scriptures. There's the witness of Christians in this room. It's the witness of Jesus Christ on the cross, his love and his His example shining brightly for all of eternity to tell us that in our darkest times, when God seems the most absent, is when God is actually doing His greatest, greatest work. Can we all stand this morning? I'm sure all over this room this morning, not because I'm some kind of prophet or have special insight, but just because we're all human I'm sure that in this room this morning are represented so many different fears, so many different doubts and circumstances that just would make some of us just gasp, just, I I can't believe you're going through that, I can't believe you're dealing with that, I can't believe that's your story, I can't believe that you have to wake up every morning and face that, and I want to tell you this morning, this message might not solve everything, these words might not be the actual fix, but you can, in just a moment, I'm going to open this front and I'm going to invite us all to come forward. You can leave here, people, with maybe not your solution, but you can leave here with trust in God again. You can leave here with a renewed hope today. God has brought you here not by accident. You're not here just because somebody promised you free lunch. God's brought you here. God can use every circumstance. God can use every pain. Come on, somebody say amen in the room if you know what I'm talking about. That God can use it all, the good, the bad, And the oh so ugly, He can redeem it all. All of your pain doesn't have to be wasted. Without Him, it's going to be wasted. Without Him, there was no reason for it. But if you'll let it bring you to Him, if you will let it come, you know, draw you to come to Him, and in this this front this morning, and these next few moments, if you'll let it, just kind of, just humble us a little bit. and That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? but if you'll let it just humble you a little bit, all of us, if we'll just let it humble us a little bit to bow our head and to close our eyes and to tell them, God, I've doubted you. God, I've questioned if you even have heard my prayers. God, you know I could point to days. I could point to dates. I could give you words that I have spoken and it didn't seem like you cared. Didn't seem like you were listening. But God, this morning, would you give me an assurance, a brand new assurance that you were there all along. And the times when I couldn't see you, the times when things were the darkest, God, those in fact were the moments that I could trust you most, that you were doing your greatest work in my life. Redeem our pain today. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.